Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. My guest and co-host today is skateboarding pioneer, philanthropist, and podcaster, Tony Hawk. Tony and I talk about his discovery of skateboarding, surviving high school, early relationships, empty swimming pools, the X Games, recovering from injuries, extended family, his podcast, Hawk vs. Wolf, and a lot more. Today's caller is Jenny, who, after recently losing her mother, has fallen out with her siblings. Jenny's repeated efforts to reconnect are being ignored, and she wonders if she should stop trying. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, we would love to hear from you. Just look for the link in our show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Maybe the one time I stood on a skateboard nothing about it felt safe or stable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you describe it as flying. Will you elaborate on that? Yeah. When I first stood on a skateboard, it just felt like I was on a magic carpet and the street was just rushing by. And, and yeah, I was not in control necessarily, but that level of adrenaline was something I never experienced. So I loved it right away. But then when I found my way to a skate park and I saw people flying out of swimming pools that's when I thought, oh, you can fly on a skateboard. And that was the moment where I decided I wanted to do it. That was the moment where I decided I wanted to get serious about it and quit all the other sports I was doing. But Tony, there's so much early pain involved. Yeah, that never really deterred me. <laughs> no, clearly not. Can't explain it. Yeah, I definitely got scraped up along the way. My first bad injury, I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I knocked out my front teeth. I got a concussion. And that was in a swimming pool, right? That was in a swimming pool, yeah. And I had to go by ambulance to the hospital. And my parents picked me up there. And my first thought when I finally had some clarity was not, oh, I'm never doing that again. My first thought was, oh, I got to figure out how to do that trick better. <laughs> I got to figure out how to be more stable with it. Were your parents like, mm, I mean, they clearly were supportive, were you worried that they were going to be like, no, you're not doing this. You're too reckless. I didn't worry that much because they had seen me get hurt through my youth. And my dad was always pretty nonchalant. He was a World War II veteran. You know, he was very much like, oh, you can just fix it with this, this. And so I kind of had that upbringing that injuries aren't scary, that not everything requires a hospital visit. And so I didn't think that they would make me quit. If nothing else, I thought that maybe they would try to tell me to like, I don't know, relax a bit. I don't really know. But my dad forced me to get a new helmet. That was the big shift. The helmet I was wearing was much more for aesthetics and not for functionality. And so he's like, yeah, we're getting rid of that thing. I heard you describing your experience on The Simpsons. Yeah. With a huge degree of appreciation. And that made me think, oh, there's something there. To get where you're at, first of all, you were practicing all the time and lived in that space. Out of love, I assume, 
right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I loved it. I was obsessed. <laughs> I still am. The thread that I wanted to explore a little bit was the idea that you appreciate the idea of diligence of people who are passionate about what they do and you marvel in it. Yeah, I think so. I appreciate those who, I hate using the word perfect, but the ones that want to explore something so deeply that they just become experts by default. And I feel like that comes with experience, but it also comes with getting outside your comfort zone. It comes with rising to challenges and never resting on your accolades. I mean, The Simpsons is an institution for decades. It's unreal, the quality that they've had all through the years. And it's such a mark of pop culture. So when I was invited to be featured on it, firstly, that was a huge honor. I never imagined that, well, me or any skateboarder would get that invite. If nothing else, it would be more that they're making fun of us, even though Bart is a skater. But to have a show centered around me was unreal. And then when I went to the table read and I saw these voices that have become such a part of our fabric of culture come out of these people that some of them I've never seen before, it was like an out-of-body experience. And it made me appreciate just how truly talented they are and how they riff on each other. And it was intimidating. I mean, I'm there trying to be funny too, <laughs> you know, with the lines they gave me. I'm excited to be talking with you because you have a diligence. This is only my assumption of practice that you probably never viewed as practice. And your relationship with a board. And I want to know about like your most sentimental board and kind of want to explore in that area before I ask you the tough relationship questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if I'm trying to learn something new, I enjoy figuring it out piece by piece and just sort of chipping away at it. And sometimes that takes hours, sometimes it takes weeks, and even in some cases, years. So I enjoy that I am getting to that goal or to that realization. And sometimes, especially with skating, some tricks are so technical that my approach doesn't change and one just works. And in that moment, it's more frustrating because there was nothing learned in it. It's because this kind of move, there's so much room for error that if you lock into it once, that may be all you get. And sometimes that's hard to reconcile because I have plenty of tricks that I've only done once for a video and I'm never gonna get them again. But there are other tricks that I've figured out the technique and I figured out how to do it consistently. And those are the ones that are more gratifying. Oh, because I was going to ask you, is there a certain heartbreak? I mean, when I finally make a trick that's that technical, I'm elated. I was listening to you talk about the 900. I'm having trouble imagining what that is. And that was in 1999. Will you tell? Yeah. Like my parents may listen to this and they have no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Basically, it's a two and a half somersault in the air. You go up a ramp that has a vertical plane. You go up in the air, you spin around two and a half times, like two and a half somersaults, and then you come back down. And because it's on the same side of the ramp, you're coming up forward and coming down forward. And I heard you talk about the idea of a landing point. Yeah, that was the hardest hurdle for me to overcome in that trick. In fact, something that took me almost 10 years to figure out because you're trying to spin. We didn't have the big ramps like people do now where they have these ramps that are almost twice as tall that are like 25, 30 feet tall that allow you more airtime. So the biggest ramp we had was about 11 feet tall and you can only go so high above that. Only 11 feet tall? I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about, but that does seem awfully difficult to get enough speed. You have to get enough speed to spin around that fast. And so my spin had to be ultra fast. 
And when you're spinning that fast, you lose sight of your landing zone. And it's all more in the feel of it. You know, it's like a gymnast. When you speak of a landing point, are you talking about like a, I don't know, a two foot square patch, even shorter than that? There's definitely a sweet spot that allows you to land comfortably and not be recovering from it. So I would say the zone on the ramp is probably around four feet. And if you land lower than that, it's going to be a hard recovery. If you land higher than that, you don't really have the time to stand up the way that you should. And you don't see that because you're spinning so fast. So my issue with that trick was that when I would get to that point of the landing, even if I was in the pocket, my weight was not distributed the right way. So I was leaning too far back towards my back foot. That was the big problem. And when I finally committed to one where I thought I was leaning the right way, I was too far forward and then I crashed into the bottom because I was so top heavy and I broke my rib. And that was around 1996. That was probably when I thought maybe this is not possible. And I honestly didn't try it much until the X Games a few years later because I had got gun shy after that. So if bodily injury was a deterrent at times, how did you like push through? So fast forward to that X Games, there was something about that ramp that was much better than previous ramps we had skated in that I could keep my speed up a lot easier. I could get the height I needed because in the previous attempts, only about one out of four did I have enough speed for, but I still had to just try it. So it was really inconsistent. So at the X Games, I was getting a consistent speed and it allowed me to spin the same way every single time. And at some point I started seeing the landing and that had never happened before. That is cool. Then I figured out how to shift my weight mid spin so that I evened it out. And that was the turning point. So after about my fifth or sixth try at the X Games, which I didn't even plan to try that trick. It was a best trick event. And my best trick at the time was what's called a varial 720. It's basically a double spin in the air while spinning my board one half turn under my feet. That was my best trick. That seems like an awesome trick though, Tony. That's all I had planned. And I made it early on in the event. So I had nothing else to give. And so the announcer at the time, the guy that was on site said, oh, why don't we see one of those 900s? He knew I had never done it. And I thought, okay, sure, I'll show you what that looks like because I can pose one all day. <laughs> what does that mean? I just spun it. And as I was getting around, I would just throw my board away and slide down on my okay. wheels. Like, that's how we get out of situations if something goes wrong in the beginning. Gosh, that must be an odd behavior to learn. Like I'm going down, throw the board. <laughs> As a seasoned ramp skater, that's just part of it. Sure. But like I said, after about the fourth or fifth try, I realized that my spin was consistent. I was seeing the landing and it was like, oh, maybe, maybe this is the time. And after I tried it the first time to really try to make it, in my mind, I thought, if I'm ever going to get hurt doing it, it's going to be here. It would absolutely be worth it here to <laughs> explode on it because this is the biggest venue we've ever seen. I had the crowd behind me. I had my peers behind me, which is even... Even more of a surprise because most events, you don't have your competitors cheering you on, right? Because they had all been part of the journey. A lot of them were trying it themselves. And so I figured I'm either going to make this tonight or I'm going to be taken away in an ambulance. Those are the only two endings to this event. And is your heart pounding or are you like kind of blind? I was just hyper-focused yeah. on it. Yeah, I had blinders on. In fact, everything kind of washed away, the crowd and whatever. And also the time had run out on the actual event. So I was just doing it for myself as far as I was concerned. I didn't even think we were still on air. Like that wasn't the point. The point for me was to finally accomplish this thing that had plagued me for almost a decade. So for me, it was just a personal goal. 
Little did I know that they actually went overtime with their programming and they just let it run because they saw something was happening. Yeah. Which was really shocking. I want to know what else this sense of sort of daring perfectionism emerges in your life. In what other ways? I think it's more that I'm not afraid of repetition. I don't easily get bored like that because I've seen how it works in skateboarding. So in the quest of accomplishing something, I know that you have to put in the hours and you have to put in the work. And sometimes it's exhausting and frustrating and maddening, but eventually you get there if you're willing to see it through. And so I think I've applied that to many other aspects of my life in terms of relationships, in terms of child rearing, in terms of business. It's more like, all right, we're going to learn from these mistakes and we're going to keep at it and we're going to get better at it. Are you mechanical at all? I don't think I'm mechanical, no. I mean, I definitely was super nerdy as a kid. I learned computers early on when that was the furthest thing from cool besides skateboarding. So this is what I want to know. You were starting to become well-known. You had an identity outside of school that was really special, right? Like around 14, 15? I'd say more like 15, 16, yeah. I want to understand how you felt at that time. Like, what was high school like? I had no status. Skateboarding was the furthest thing from cool that you could do in in the late 70s and early 80s. Why was that? It's always felt cool. Mostly because I committed to it at a time when it had died in popularity. So I would say like 1981, 82, that was the furthest thing from cool you could do. It was more like you're still playing with those. Oh. You're still doing yo-yos. You're still doing frisbees. Like grow up. When I was in high school, I used to hide my skateboard because if I walked onto campus with it, I was instantly marked and I was instantly getting bullied. I was already getting hassled. You know, in our day, they didn't say bullying. They just said, you got picked on. I got picked on endlessly for being a skater. And I was super young. I was skinny and I was little. And so I looked like I was in sixth grade when I was in ninth grade. Me too. It was like, who's this kid visiting (laughs) campus? Yeah. And so that all played into it. But at the same time, I had my community over in the skateboard world and I had respect there and I had I had my crew. And so I wasn't dying for acceptance. You didn't need it. Yeah, in my school. But it was hard. It made it super difficult to push through high school because it was just like I was being pushed away. Now I want to talk to you about early crushes. Like, do you consider yourself a romantic? And how old were you when you really felt that you were in love? (laughs) I would like to think that I'm romantic. I hope that my wife thinks I'm romantic. I don't think that I knew or understood romance in those years. Did you crush? Yeah, but I just felt so out of place that I didn't feel like there was even a chance anyway. Like I said, I was very much an outcast and considered a misfit. And so it was like, yeah, sure, there were girls that I thought were interesting. And I just thought, there's no way they're going to like me. So it was more, who's hanging out at the skate park? And that was generally like a sister of a skater or something like that. But yeah, I mean, my first girlfriend, her mom was the manager of the snack bar at the skate park. Awesome. And did you love her? I thought so. I mean, in terms of what I knew at the time. Yeah. But what I understand to be true intimacy now, I I didn't. I just didn't have the tools, nor did I have the direction from my parents on how to be an effective partner, how to be a supportive partner. You know, it was just more like, it was more like a status symbol to have a girlfriend at the time. It wasn't like a true partnership. How do you mean about your parents? They just weren't affectionate with each other. You know, my dad never said, I love you. And They were just more like roommates. And so that's what I knew growing up. And I hate defaulting to that 
to blame all of my rocky romances, but that definitely had an effect on me. Like treating your partner worse than you would treat a friend, just not even having the same delicacy of consideration. And if you're not shown that, then that's what you think a marriage kind of is. You definitely are affected by those examples. But I also remember as I grew and seeing my friends who had stable relationships and who just seemed to have it figured out, I was always more envious, but not willing to take those cues or understand what it was that I was doing differently than they were. And eventually got old enough, had enough failures that I figured it out and it took guidance and it took me leaning into guidance more than anything. It took me accepting that I don't understand how to function in a committed relationship or how to be a supportive or even having partners that I was compatible with, so to speak. Oh, yeah. And a lot of the onus is on me for all of that. But, you know, eventually figured out how to make it work, and how to be happy in it. Would you say that skating gave you sort of a base level self-reliance or confidence? Well, skating all through my life, it's been the one place where I felt like I had complete control over my destiny, over my movements, over my creativity. And so I always went back to that to find some sense of center. But it is a community as well. That's what I love about it. It's such an art form as well as being a sport that you can do it in any style and still be part of the community and still have support and camaraderie. But yeah, it's my zen. I mean, when I go skate, I feel like I can relax again and forget about everything. And even though like I've been pushing through this injury for the last six months. Oh, Tony, will you tell us about the injury? I'm sorry, I didn't know. Oh, I broke my leg in March. I broke my femur. Oh, God. It's been the hardest injury for sure. I broke my pelvis in 2003. This one has been a longer and more challenging recovery because of my age, but also because it like wiped all of my confidence, all of my tricks, everything away. And every time I skate, I'm relearning some basic skill that I've been taking for granted for the last 40 years. Oh, that's got to be really hard. For sure. But like I said, even though I am struggling with it and, and it's painful when I skate, I still get that same sense of peace and accomplishment when I'm out there. And I mean, just the other day, I relearned a trick that I literally learned when I was 13 years old. And I had to push through to relearn this trick that I used to be able to do any day of the week with my eyes closed. And it felt good. I'm getting a lot better though. Like I do feel like something has shifted in the last couple of weeks. So I'm able to balance my weight more evenly. So how did you break it? Uh, doing a McTwist on my ramp. Will you describe that? <laughs> a McTwist? A McTwist is a one and a half spin in the air. So it's basically the beginning of what would be a 900, but it's just one and a half. And I knew that I didn't have enough speed going into it, but that's something that's never deterred me because I was always able to ball up quicker or figure it out. And I think that my cockiness got ahead of my age and my agility. That you're still having this joy of what it gives you. That says so much. Yeah, but I feel like I have been, not careless, but I have definitely been taking my skills for granted for the last few years in the sense that I am way older. I definitely don't move as quickly. I'm not as flexible. Yet I just kept doing what I was doing because I always could. And at some point it got ahead of me. And with this trick, like this is not a trick to take for granted. This is not a trick that you should be doing if everything's not perfect. And I didn't care. And then suddenly found myself sliding across the bottom of the ramp with my leg pointing the other direction. 
dragging behind me and it was like, oh, oh you, you really fucked us up. <laughs> oh, God, Tony, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I did, I do feel like, you know, I'm not one of those people like everything happens for a reason. It was a big lesson to me in terms of what I should be capable of, how much I love what I do in that I'm willing to go through all of this recovery just to get back to some baseline of skating that I'm happy with. And to know that I'm so devoted and obsessed with this thing that has defined me for most of my life that I got to keep doing it. Like it's what I need in terms of mental health to keep doing it. And a lot of people would think that that's reckless at my age, shouldn't be skating, shouldn't be taking risks and things. And they just don't understand what the baseline of my risk is. It gave you enough joy that the pain was so worth it all. Oh, always. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I heard you speak about how there was an older style, and I didn't really understand because I don't know anything about your world. I want to hear about that, what that means. Yeah, well, when I first started, there was sort of an accepted style of skating in terms of skating pools. The empty pools, just maybe for people who don't know, will you talk a little bit about that idea? Sure. Well, some of the early skaters, especially in Southern California, they started skating empty swimming pools because there was a huge drought and the skaters were trying to emulate surfing. So these pools look like waves. And that is why they wanted to ride up to the face of these walls. And in those days, there was nothing what we know as traditional street skating. That didn't exist because people didn't understand what you could do with a skateboard under your feet. So you either skated pools or you skated freestyle. And freestyle was like dancing or like ice skating. And that was not the cool form of skating as far as I was concerned because it wasn't the risky, dangerous flying stuff. And so when I first started skating, I wanted to fly. But I was so little that I couldn't get the speed or the strength to get up out of the bowls because I just was like a featherweight. And I figured out my own technique of actually launching using my feet instead of grabbing with my hands, which we know now is the ollie to air technique. But I learned how to do it upward over the lip and then grab my board later. And that was the turning point for me because if I were to grab my board before the lip, all my speed's gone. Right. Because I didn't have the bulk to keep my speed up. So you're almost like kicking it as... Kicking it up and then it just comes into my hand. So it's more effortless. I didn't think I was changing the world. I just thought this is the only way I can do it and get airborne. And so it was more of desperation than technique. But when you see it now, that is the best way to get airborne. I mean, you would not see anyone, any new skater early grabbing their boards unless they're doing it as a joke. 
What makes a perfect pool? Like back in the day. The radius, the smoothness of the radius. Does there have to be anything specific about the edge? You don't want the coping to stick out very much. But by the time I got into skating, they were developing pools for skating. So the skate parks were a bunch of empty swimming pools. I didn't have to grow up in the era of the Dogtown Z-Boys hopping fences, trying to break into other pools because they were kind of smooth. I did my share of that, but I was lucky that they were building pools made for skating by the time I got into it. That's awesome. Tony, can you tell us about a heartbreak in your life and how you kind of worked through it? Well, definitely losing my dad when I was younger because he was such an avid supporter of me and skateboarding in general. I love it that your dad, the fact that he wasn't like, what are you doing still skateboarding? As most of my friends did. Most of my friends, their parents did not want them skating and they had to rely on rides from my dad to the skate park. That gift means everything. It means that the successes that he wasn't there for, he wouldn't be surprised by. Probably not. Yeah, I think you're right. But he also saw my downturn of my career. He saw me riding high in my teens in the 80s. And then he saw it also all fall off in the early 90s. Did he try to discourage you? No, he just, he knew I would hustle to try to make ends meet. I mean, at that point, I had my first child and I had two mortgages and he knew that I was just going to do whatever it takes to provide I guess the silver lining to all this is that he got to see the first X Games. He got to see skateboarding on ESPN. Yeah. And to him, ESPN was the biggest. That was sports. He was a mainstream sports fan as well as being an advocate for skating. So when he saw us on the same network as football and baseball, that was everything. It legitimized skating as a sport. And you were instrumental in this. I think at some point I realized that, especially during those years of the X Games, A lot of people who were taking an interest in skating, they knew my name from the years prior, from the 80s, or their parents knew my name from the 80s. And so there was this sort of crossover of generations that I held. All I really wanted to do was advocate for skating and to show that this could be a positive thing for kids to get into, that there is a need for more facilities. And I think I, at some point, realized that I'd become a spokesperson for skating by default just because people knew my name from different eras. And then eventually from video games. What does the idea of home mean to you? Just where my family is. It doesn't have to be a location. For instance, this summer, I did a speaking tour across Europe, and we ended in Italy. Where in Italy? It's a place just on the border of Tuscany and Umbria. It's near Florence. It's sort of this resort where you can rent a house. And so we rented a house and all of our kids flew in. And even though, you know, yeah, it's elaborate, it's luxurious and all that, it did just feel like home because all of our kids were there. But because all of our kids, they're all out of the house. You know, three are in college, two are out on their own. We just have one at home. Our daughter's 14. So to have everyone in one place again was really special. Yeah. You know, they're all scattered and they all have crazy schedules. So... That's my definition of home, is when all the kids are there, even though it's rare these days. That sounds incredible. I have to keep up in the ante or else they're going to lose interest. (laughs) Tony, I did want to ask you about your first kind of intense relationship. I like to think about those raw years of like 16 to like 23. What was happening then? What was happening? Well, my career took off like crazy, especially in my late teens and early 20s. And I was with my first serious girlfriend who became my wife and mother of my first child. And it was intense, but super difficult because suddenly I was expected to travel endlessly. 
And trying to maintain a relationship with all of those distractions was already challenging. Oh, completely. And then all of a sudden I'm thrust into the spotlight of being recognizable. And you have to focus more on your work, essentially. Yeah, I mean, luckily my work was also my leisure, was my play. But never did I imagine that I would be recognizable or desirable or anything like that, where suddenly we're out performing for thousands of people and there's adulation. And and so all of those things I just was not ready for. So I just wasn't a good partner. I wasn't good at having a relationship and things were getting serious. And then suddenly everything took a downturn and we had a child and there was so many difficulties in that, but also I just wasn't in a place mentally ready to take on all those challenges or to sort through them or to push through the discomfort of them. So I would distract elsewhere. And so it just became a bad cycle. Handling fame at that age, handling a marriage and a baby at that age. I didn't handle it very well. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) How did you meet your wife? We met just through the industry, mutual friends. She's from Detroit and moved to California, was doing video editing. So we had that mutual interest and she used to skate. So she was around the skate scene and we just had found ourselves with a lot of the same interests, but we're just friends. We both had different relationships by the time we met. And then many, many years later, found ourselves both single and, you know, our friendship blossomed. There's an idea of home in there that you guys had met so long ago. Oh, sure. Our kids were always very good friends. Oh, that's amazing. It wasn't like we were introducing two separate families to each other. It was more like there was already this synergy. I have now two stepchildren that are teenagers, and it's been a learning curve for me. It's been hugely rewarding, those rare moments where I'm like, did I do something correctly? Yeah. Which is mostly just staying out of things and being super supportive. That's what I've learned. Yeah, and letting them figure things out, but still giving them some nudging. I had to recognize that I get to be in this very special position, which is truly just of support. Yeah, I have four of my own and then two stepkids, and it's been so fun seeing them. You know, it's been so rewarding and enjoyable to see them come into their own as adults and I told you we went to Italy. There was a moment where we were all sitting around this table having dinner. And I looked at my wife and I was like, look, we did it. That's so beautiful. They're all making good choices. They're all living on their own. They all have their own interests. And my oldest was there with his very serious girlfriend. And who knows? (laughs) I'm not making projections. I love that. That is awesome. And that is a huge testament to who you guys are. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. Will you tell me about your podcast before we get to callers? Sure. I have a podcast with a good friend of mine, Jason Ellis. It's called Hawk versus Wolf. We interview some people, but we also just have shows of us telling stories. And he and I have been through so many crazy experiences together and separately. I mean, his journey life is way different, but he was a pro skater. So I just feel like we're here to entertain. And it's been a blast. We've had great feedback. And we also get very interesting guests. And we're once a week, every Monday. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, nice to meet you. Jenny, thank you so much for your letter. Will you tell us what's going on? So currently I'm in a weird position. We had our mom pass away April. So it's been very, very recent. <sighs> My mom's been sick, was sick for many years before passing. And I decided about seven years ago to just step away from the family. And when my mom got closer to her passing and when we were planning her end of life care, my family and I just got closer, essentially. So that was earlier last year into this year. And things got really good between all of us. I have a very, very big family. So it was really nice. You write that you have eight siblings? I am number eight. (laughs) That's a lot. And everyone's married and has kids. I'm the only one that's not married or has any children. So very, very large family. So last year into this year, we all really just came together and it was really nice. And I had forgotten how much I missed them. And it was almost like we were back to normal, essentially. So family dinners, celebrating holidays again, birthday parties. It was really, really nice. And I think I assumed that when my mom passed, it was going to stay the same. And I think we're all just processing very differently. And now about five to six months later, and I don't feel like I'm part of the family anymore. And I expressed that to them and it was just kind of ignored. And now I'm in a position where should I just let go? Well, no, because you want this, you know? I want to know who you're closest to sibling-wise and what happened that seven years ago you started to feel increasingly more, I don't know if this is correct or not, but like the different one, I guess. I get what you're saying. Uh, So I'm the closest to my little brother. So when my mom first got sick, I was 19 years old. I was my first year of college. So I was the only one that didn't have any children at the time. And obviously my little brother was in the sixth grade. So it became about who could take the responsibility. So you stepped up. Yeah. And I don't regret any of it. I decided to, you know, take care of my mom and my little brother. And it was really hard. Did you have to leave school? Not in the beginning. I was able to juggle both. You know, I was able to have a part-time job and I was able to take care of my mom and still go to school, take one class at a time. But then it became too much. So I dropped out of school. My mom and my brother became my focus. Then when my brother graduated high school, I didn't know who I was anymore. It was just about them. And that was around the same time I was no longer able to take care of my mom. She became too ill, so we needed to put her in a full-time nursing home. And when that happened, I was living in our family home. So it became about, well, since you're not taking care of my mom anymore, you know, you can't live here. And so it was very much just like, I didn't know what to do. Really just confusing. 
Who made this decision, do you mind my asking? Or who was the messenger on this? It was my three oldest siblings. Okay. They decided they just wanted to sell it and no longer deal with it. And since my brother was going to be graduating high school and going off to college himself, to them, it made more sense. Okay. It caused a lot of conflict. I was just very much like I had dropped out of school. I felt like I had given up my entire 20s for my family. And then all of a sudden, I'm just kind of left on my own. I'm sorry. So I felt like just cast aside. And so the easiest thing for me to do at the time was like, okay, if you guys are not going to help me out and want me to do this on my own, then I will do it completely on my own. So I left, I moved out, I found a place to rent. And then I disconnected from really everyone except for my youngest brother. And it was actually kind of nice. You know, I went into my late 20s, made a lot of new friends and got a job. I slowly started going back to school and I'm 32 now. And you know, I have a career now and financially stable and I feel like coming back, I'm not the same person. So, you know, reconnecting was different because I wasn't that kid anymore. Nothing like family to remind you that you once were, though. Yeah, I wasn't the baby. I didn't feel like a baby. And now I'm back and it's just right back to where we started again. I mean, started in terms of being disconnected. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a two-way street, too. You can't be the only one that's reaching out. And you can't be the one to convince them that they have to be part of your life too. So that gets super tricky. I actually know a friend of mine that same thing took care of her mom until she passed. And then a lot of her friends abandoned her because they said she was too hyper-focused on that or, you know, she was also drinking to try to distract from all that. So they kind of disowned her and she was heartbroken. And she is trying to mend those relationships. But at some point, you can't be the only one. Grief is so lonely, too. I'm fortunate enough that my parents are still around. But you both have lost parents at a young age. And it is, I would imagine, incredibly solitary. But it's kind of when you need people the most. Yeah. Yeah. But it does feel like just in terms of when you speak of your current life and your relationships, it does feel like it's much more enriching. Do you know what I mean? I know there's definitely a wistfulness for all being together. And I don't know if you're going to be back together with them, but maybe that is the gift that your mom gave you before she passed was that togetherness for that time. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Jenny, I think it's a testament to your character that you may have specific personal grudges towards each sibling for the house, for not being there for you, for maybe saying that one catty thing that is just rolling around in the back of your head. But I think it's a testament to you that your goal seems to really be to go back to that time when you felt close. Yeah, I think what Tony said is just resonating a lot. It's always felt like I'm making all this effort. Since I sent that letter, there was like a huge dumb argument about my mom's plaque. And think about it, and I was like so dumb, but I really just laid it out there because I wanted a transparency and I let them know how I felt. And I think I really just expected some of them to reach out. It's been now six months since her passing and I visit her every week. It's very important that there's something there with her name on it. So because of COVID and a lot of deaths recently, everything's been very behind. So I took the initiative to start the process and kind of push for a placement of one. 
good. So I started a group chat and I was like, hey guys, this is what I'm doing. I will go ahead and pay for it. These are our options. This is what I'm thinking it should say. Let me know what you guys think. This is when the deadline is. I basically just gave them all the information. This is the day and time we're meeting. If all or any of you guys can come and like we can actually pick everything right then and there, that would be even better. I sent that no one responded. No one responded. So I just kind of started doing everything. And then I sent the proof of like, this is what it looks like. And then that's when everybody's like, that's not what we want. This is what we want. And <sighs> it just kind of got out of hand. You have been alone in this without your siblings, with your grief, essentially. Yeah. And then annoyingly, they're like, no, wait, we want to stay in this plaque too. Exactly. And so I just basically laid it out and was like, you know, I don't feel like you guys are understanding and you guys are basically making a bigger deal. So what I'm getting at is like, I think I expected them to respond to my text message because I was very angry and was like, I'm done. I don't know what else I can do. It has been four days and I have had zero calls or texts from anyone. I'm sorry. So they didn't respond to you saying, I want to do a plaque and get it started. And then when you showed them what the plaque was, their only response was negative. Yes. And then they went MIA again. Correct. That just doesn't sound like having healthy relationships or boundaries or even being compassionate to what, I mean, you guys all have to be compassionate to what each other wants, but at some point they can't just be bashing you for it. You're absolutely justified in feeling that way. Totally. And being angry. But Jenny... Here's the long game, and it's going to be tough. Yeah. But I think it'll be rewarding. What two siblings are the closest that might be unbreakable? It's going to be the three youngest, so my little brother and my sister that's just older than I am. So the person you feel closest to is even closer to the third in the line? Yes. Okay. I wonder if they're resentful about your distance after the move. It could be. We don't talk about it. It's just more of a, oh, you're back. <laughs> right. And like, what's going on with you and things like that. And I am sometimes can be short because I don't want to explain a lot of my stuff that I've been through. And they don't know too much about my personal life, I guess. But they're not asking. Yeah, they're not a part of it. I think what you need to do is text your brother and say, hey, can you spare an hour for a phone conversation? I'm really missing you and I want to catch up. Maybe start out with some memories. You know, I was just thinking the other day about that one thing that happened and that was so crazy and it reminded me of this. And, you know, I missed you guys and I know that we had the whole thing with the plaque. I think I'm just really struggling with this. And I really loved that time that we all had. I felt really close to you guys. How does this approach sound, Jenny? It would mean the dismissal of your anger for a minute. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd definitely be open to that. My little brother is definitely the most chill out of everyone. Okay. Can you have a conversation like that with him? Definitely. Okay, good. This is a good place to start. If he's receptive, I would say, what do you think I should do? Like, who should I reach out to? Because, you know, people want to see what they want to see. Tony, what do you think about this idea? Like a slow patient reconnection? Yeah, I think that's a great start. But I also think that if you can lay it all out in terms of opening yourself up, even being vulnerable and saying, look, this is how I feel. And this is how you made me feel without being accusatory. Yeah. 
Because that starts to go south super fast. Because they're already primed for it. Yeah, so it's just like, this is how I feel. This is what I want to get back to, or these are the moments that meant a lot to me. And if we can get there, I would be very thankful. And if they reject that, there's not much you can do to turn the tide. I am of the belief that even with family, I don't think that we have to have relationships with anybody that makes us feel lousy. Yeah. But I think that there's something kind of beautiful to explore here. They want to think of you as that person that they knew. They want to think of you as the one who is short-tempered, who is, you know, independent, kind of doing their own thing and, you know, shit like that that people hold on to. Yeah. So you may have to do overcompensation to get them to think of you as the person that you are, a person that's grown now. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily get the satisfaction of being able to express your hurt and your anger, but you can, there is time for it. But for the time being, if your goal is to be close with your siblings, which I think is a really beautiful thing at this time, it will take a ton of patience from you. And it's going to be hard, but it'll be a really important growing process if you're willing to embark on it. I think it's also healthy to set your boundaries. Yes. You can't just always be listening to that and being hurt by it. At some point, you have to say, no, that's enough. Like, I don't deserve this constantly or this level of it. And that's super hard to stand up for yourself. I didn't learn that until I was way later in life that, no, I'm not going to engage in that because it's not going anywhere and it's hurtful to me and to you. So if you can set your boundaries and stick to that, it's going to suck in the beginning, but it's going to be so much better later on. And they may just come around to respect you for that. Yeah. I also think everybody is still grieving and you might just have to be the bigger person. No, I agree with that. Yeah. I just think there's a really nice opportunity for you to get to know your siblings in a way that you haven't before and for them to know you. But I think you have to be proactive and you can start small, ask your brother for advice, then call your next oldest sister. To me, apologizing is very easy. I don't mind doing it. It really sucks when someone doesn't recognize that, though, an act of generosity. I think like a bit of in between, right? So yeah, I definitely feel good about, you know, reaching out, especially to my sister and my brother but also setting those boundaries and just protecting myself. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that it's great that you're doing it now and not waiting till other issues or everyone's older and you feel like you're trying to do it the last minute or something. I think it's really good that you're proactive and you're doing it. And again, I'm sorry for your loss as well. How does all of this sound, Jenny? Yeah, no, I appreciate both of you guys so much. I think that I will reach out, but I will be very cautious Yeah, and make sure I set those boundaries. Yeah, and Jenny, don't forget, too, that every single party member in your family is raw right now. Yeah. They don't know where to channel it. Yeah. I think you can get there. Yeah. You managed to get there in the face of such sorrow and grief, and then everyone is trying to process that, but it feels like you can't get back there. Keep your eye on the goal. If it's those dinners again, it's just going to require a lot of generosity on your part. Yeah. And tolerance. Yeah. Okay. I bet your mom really wanted that for all you guys, though, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And she's in you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Stay strong. Thank you. Bye. 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 Oh, Tony, I can't thank you enough. It was just awesome talking to you, and you gave really beautiful advice. Thank you. Thank you again. Sure, my pleasure. Bye, Tony. Bye. Bye. 